Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we begin this time, or I shouldn't say begin, we continue this time in recognition that you have ordained every day. Lord, we recognize that those days are full of trial, suffering, and struggle sometimes, hassles at a minimum. Sometimes we're overwhelmed, and sometimes we're overwhelming. But Lord, we are thankful that your grace and mercy are new every single day. I thank you, Lord, that we don't have to rely on yesterday's or last week's mercy and grace uh, for today and tomorrow. It's going to be fresh and even more powerful than it was today. Lord, as we look into your word today about uh, the sanctifying power and our participation in that, uh, we ask that you open our eyes. And some things that we have to look at in your word are confusing or at least challenging. I pray that you will open us to help us understand, open our minds and hearts to understand more about you and how we can be partners in the gospel. Not because we deserve it, but because you have chosen by your sovereign will to share that uh, opportunity and that privilege with us. Let us not take that for granted, but embrace it and... and uh, and by your grace, be up for the challenge. We thank you again for this, Lord, in your precious and glorious name. Amen. I have, both in the personal and professional occupations, uh, learned a lot about asking questions. Asking the right question and getting the right answer is very important. Even if you get the right answer to the wrong question, it ultimately leads you to the wrong answer. So in, in different aspects of life, we are used to asking and answering questions, and sometimes the answering of those questions, whether they're conscious, like at a moment of time, or they're over a period of time, they uh, have Im big impacts on our life. For example, if you choose to go to college, if you participate in college, at some point you have to choose a major. At least by your senior year, you've got to figure out why you're there. And there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of different questions to ask yourself, and how you answer those will determine the major you pick and why. For example, uh, do you choose it because of what you're good at, because of what you like to do, because of job availability four years from when you start, or maybe because of earning potential? There's a lot of reasons to choose a major. Also, other big decisions in our life include things like marriage. Why do I get married, and who do I marry? Answering that question is, is kind of important. And there's different reasons to get married for love, for passion, for security, for family and social pressure, to avoid loneliness. There's all sorts of reasons to get married. And how you answer that will have an impact on your life. My wife, Monica, will tell you that she married me many years ago um, because I had, uh, among my other qualities, showed some potential. <laughs> and. Uh, from time to time, she very strategically reminds me that she's still waiting <laughs> for me to show that potential. I think since we've only been married 30 years, she's just impatient myself. Another question I have actually collected. Somebody's a doubter in the room, okay. Somebody, um, I've also collected uh, questions that we ask as Christians. I'm not going to go through them all now, but there's... And I have collected questions we ask and better questions that we should ask. And today we're going to look at one of those questions. We often ask ourselves something like, it might not be the exact words, but the spirit's the same. It is, where does God fit into the story of my life? 
Where does God fit into the story of my life? How do I take God and put him in, you know, my life? Whatever that looked like, personally, marriage, my workplace, whatever, however you want to connect God to your life, we try to wrestle with that and figure that out. That's a good question, but there's a better question, a more accurate question. And that question is, what does my little, how, where does my little life fit in the great story of God? Where does my little life fit in the great story of God? They're very similar questions, and it's not just semantics in answering those. They lead us in very different directions. Today we're going to uh, look, continue in our uh, view of Philippians. And to get there, though, we're going to look at one verse. We're going to park ourselves in one verse. But before we get there, I want to set the context of what that verse says. The, the, the mistake would be to jump right in and to unpack it without setting the context. And the context <clears throat> is the flow of thought of where Paul is until now. If you have uh, Bibles, uh, you can turn to Philippians and follow along. I'm going to move through it quickly. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to summarize it real quick. And then we're going to read a passage that we're going to look at today. But in Philippians, and it's not the whole thing isn't in your flyer, but we'll get to that. Um, in Philippians, we start out chapter 1. Paul thanked God for, his, uh, for their partnership in the gospel. And he was doing a work in them, and he was going to bring it to completion. And then, uh, then uh, uh, Paul prays for them for unity of, of love and knowledge. And then in verse 12 of chapter 1 through 18, he describes some of the struggles that he is having in advancing the gospel. And then in verses 19 through 26, Paul talks about a, uh, asks them to pray for him, do their partnership, pray for him because he has a personal struggle. He's in prison and he's facing death. And he personally has the struggle of uh, to, to, to die is Christ and to, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Is between if I, if I live, I serve Christ. If I die, I'm with Christ. And he personally was kind of going back and forth between those two things. But he came to the conclusion that he felt that the Lord would probably have him live because he needed to work for their progress in the faith and joy. And then verses 27 through 30, he encourages them to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Even in the midst of their opposition, they were, going to, they were facing at the time. Then we get into chapter 2. In the first four verses of chapter 2, he describes, well, what does that walking in the manner worthy of the gospel look, at, look like? It is in their relationships, how they treat each other, how they work with each other, how they humbly serve each other and think of other people's interests ahead of their own. Then, to give them an example, he goes on in verses 5 through 11, and he describes Christ himself. Christ, the humble servant, came uh, to serve humanity, came from the Father to serve humanity, and therefore God exalted him to the highest place. Then we get to our passage. So will you stand with me? And I'm going to read um, actually Philippians 2, 1 through 13. I want to set the context because the, the flow of his thought leading to today is very important. <clears throat> Philippians 2, 1 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, 
though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something, a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. You may be seated. Today, we're going to be focusing on verse 12, just verse 12, but I need to just let you know, and I told the worship team this when I started, and Sean and I have talked about this, we're, I'm, this is a little dangerous. Uh, this is as dangerous as preachers get, I guess. We're looking at one verse, but the problem is, the, my concern of this is, it's half an idea. We're going to look at one half of an idea today. Yes, we're running with scissors in the sermon, okay? It is, and th the problem is, I'm going to be focused on something, and I'm not going to address the second half. You're going to have to wait till next week till we do that. Uh, my goal is, just to be blunt, is to leave you hanging for next week. In the meantime, let's look at this week. We're going to be focusing on verse 12. That's all we're going to do. I told Sean when I, we divided up the passage, great. We're, we're a church that, that uh, preaches the gospel and, and emphasizes grace and mercy, and I get the one verse that has obedience, work, fear, and trembling in it, okay? Yeah, that wasn't pre-planned, was it? I, um, I'm going to propose something today. I'm, going to, I'm just going to... Uh, say it in a generalization, then we're going to unpack each of the phrases. So I'm going to read it to you as a whole, and then we're going to unpack it. Just, we're going to look at the pieces of that whole and put it back together. And I'm going to say this. The, the summary I want to make today of what we're doing for just a short little verse is kind of a lengthy thing, and this is it. Because God is the designer and driver of the history that includes our lives, in the gospel requires that we work out our salvation by following Christ's example of humble obedience, obeying gospel truth through life changes, striving together side by side for the faith of the gospel, having an attitude of seriousness and urgency. Let's just walk through these phrases one at a time. I ain't saying off the shoot, this is answering that question, how do we fit into the great story of God? God because God is the designer and driver of, of the history that includes our lives. What do I mean by that? Where do I get that? Well, that's why I had us read the first part of chapter 2, and that is because... In verses 8 through 11, that is the story of God. It is an awesome summary of the gospel of Christ. It's an awesome summary of the big narrative. Sometimes you call it the meta-narrative. It is the, the big story of God. We think of the Bible sometimes as a book of do's and don'ts, a moral discipline, or maybe a collection of different books or stories. But really, it is a story, one story, and that in the main, uh, if I can say, pro, uh, protagonist, the main character, I don't like calling God a character, the main character is God. It's how does God fit into the whole. And in the verses 5 through 11, we, hear, see if you, we take this apart. We've already looked at it, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But we have in there, uh, Paul talks about the pre-existence, incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and, and consummation of Christ. It's a mouthful. 
in those few verses, he summarizes the entire Bible. In fact, in those few verses, Paul summarizes the, the entire history of mankind as we know it. We can think of the meta-narrative, the story of God, in four basic ideas, four basic parts. This is very, very basic. But the overarching theme of redemptive history, the story of God, is first there's a, before, in, in respects to man, there is creation. And then there is the fall. We, sin entered the world. And then there is um, redemption. He spends from chapter 4, or actually chapter 3 of Genesis, to the end of Revelation, dealing with redeeming, fixing the fall. And then the last part of that is the new creation. So it goes from fall, excuse me, creation, fall, redemption, to new creation. That's the overarching story that God's working out. We're told in the Bible, particularly in Ephesians chapter 1, that God, before the foundation of the world, before he created anything, we are chosen in him. Before, he said, before he, anything was created, any risk of fall, we were chosen and he had a plan. And God has been planning his work, he planned his work, and he's been working his plan. The, that's very important to know, it's a very simple concept. We often think of that God's trying to figure it out as he goes. That God, has, that God goes, well, in our lives and in history, he sort of knows so far. He might be sovereign, but he only knows so far. Nope. From start to finish, it has been pre-planned. He knows what's going on. There's nothing outside of his realm. That's important to know. The question is not, how does that fit into our life? The question is, how does our life fit in that overarching plan of God? The second thing I said is that, that there's partnership in the gospel requires that we work out uh, our salvation. Where do I get partnership of the gospel? We've been talking about that quite a bit in the Philippians. Well, Paul begins the book of Philippians by thanking God for their partnership in the gospel from now until then. And then he goes for the rest of Philippians and he's unpacking that concept. He's unpacking, I'm thanking God that you guys are partners with the gospel. Now I'm going to spend the rest of the letter uh, explaining what I mean by that and encouraging you in that. In fact, Paul uses partnership language, either that word or other words, ten times in the book of Philippians. In 1517, 1:19, 1:27, 1:22, 2:25, 3:17, 4:3, and 4:15. I hope you got those down because I'm not repeating them. My point of saying that is this is a the theme of the gospel. Our partnership in the gospel, working together, co-laboring with Christ for the gospel, is the theme of Philippians. So partnership, in light of what God is doing as a whole, our partnership in that, in the gospel, means that we need to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. This is verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Let's just take a few minutes. What does Paul mean by work out your salvation? Well, first of all, let's, let's just talk about what he does not mean. Just to be clear, what does he not mean? Paul does not mean work for your salvation. Paul does not mean work at your salvation. Paul does not mean work up your salvation. Paul does not mean figure out your salvation. Like we work out a math problem or some other kind, we work it out. No, that's not what he's talking about here. We cannot do anything to earn our salvation. We cannot do anything to get right with God. Um, we don't obey Christ or God, in order to be accepted by God. We are accepted by God in Christ, therefore we obey. It is a huge, huge difference. Yet many, many people, particularly uh, many people checking out Christianity, think it's, what do I need to do to please God? And many Christians live their lives that way. What do I do to please God? No, it's that we are accepted, in Christ, accepted by God in Christ, therefore we get to obey. 
and pleased Him. There's no human effort, no goodness, nothing we can do to earn God's acceptance and live that out. Okay, then what does he mean by work out your salvation? What does he mean by that? Well, if you looked at verse 27, the verse, chapter 1, verse 27, and chapter 2, verse 12, are very, very similar they're verses. They're parallel verses. They, they, they complement each other. He makes a statement in verse 127. He develops a thought, and then he comes back and says the same thing again in verse, chapter 2, verse 12. And there he says, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. When we work something out, work out our salvation, and we're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, it's the same concept. Striving and working are the, what he's talking about here. Striving, and they have two aspects. Sean's already, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Sean's already talked about this at length. Striving has two parts of it. First of all, it's work. It's hard work. It's pushing uh, forward in something. It's, it's uh, labor. It's a lot of effort. It also has the understanding of perseverance. It has the understanding that this work over the long haul, it's not just a short little thing, but we are to work this out over a long period. It's an endurance race that takes effort, but it's going to take a while. Another word for working out would be obedience. Not a popular word in the Christian circle sometimes. Obedience. But it is a key word in our Christian life. For example, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus, we know this is the Great Commission. This is the reason, if I can say it this way, one of the reasons, not the only reason, uh, that the church exists, that Christ made disciples. He says this, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Let's stop there for a second. That sure should echo like, Every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Then he goes on. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, or in another way of saying that, is obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Our, our faith in Christ is expressed in our obedience to Christ. We can say that be a disciple of Christ, to be a follower of Christ, in part is defined by our obedience to Christ. That's what that passage says. Obedience is, is what, not just what we know something, but it's following through with an action. Let's, let's say, for example, just a simple example in everyday life. If I tell one of my sons to go out and mow the lawn, pretty clear and concise thing, go mow the lawn. And he tells me all about how grass grows. And he tells me all about how there's different kinds of lawns and about weeds and fertilizers. Or he tells me about lawnmowers and how he really needs a riding lawnmower, okay? He can tell me all those things, how the lawnmower works. Has he obeyed me if he has not cut the lawn? No. And yet, many times, we Christians can talk up a storm about Christ's command. We can analyze it to here and there, but Christ is going to say, did you obey me? Did you do it? Working out our salvation is synonymous with obeying Christ. There's two tendencies that we have <clears throat> when we talk about working out, obeying, and those kind of things. One is uh, passive faith. There's a number of people who have this more laid-back view. Well, there's a number of ways, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but some people think, well, God is love. He loves me just the way I am, so I don't need to worry about it. Some people are going to say, well, salvation is all of grace, so there's nothing I really can do, so therefore I'm not going to do anything. And some people have the motto, let go and let God. Sounds real spiritual, but just not biblical. And there's other people who have a tendency to be legalistic in their faith. And there's all sorts of versions of legalism. There are those who are, say that they believe, and they, they might not say it, but they actually act this way and they think this way. They're saved by grace plus their own merit. 
They are, uh, God, God's um, ongoing favor is dependent on their obedience. Yes, God saved me, but he's not going to stay, he's not going to be pleased with me unless I'm doing, doing the things he wants me to do. Or I might be saved by grace, but I have to pay God back. It's a huge one. Oh yeah, he did save me, but I, I owe him. If you say you owe him, <clears throat> it's not grace. Or they say, um, I'm saved this way, and so does everybody else have to be saved this way. They have to behave this way. That's a legalism, too. The, I, the idea here is that, <clears throat> excuse me, that there are, these are, tendencies are in error. Working out, striving, obedience are not contradictions to grace and truth and grace and faith. Nor does grace and working out our salvation exclude each other. And I want to spend a moment making sure we're clear on this. Because this is the tendency that we, get avoid, that we need to avoid. I'm going to look at some scriptures, and you don't need to turn there. I'll tell you what they are, and I'm just going to read them to you and talk through them. And I want, I want to pause here, because this distinction between grace and faith and works and obedience is a fine line. It's, it's sometimes a paradox. Which are we supposed to do? Is it grace or truth, or is it, is it obedience? And uh, it's not a contradiction. And the scripture show. I could show you, we go to dozens of passages, dozens of passages of scripture, but we're not going to. I'm going to look at three. Now, I'm going to look, first of all, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. You might just want to jot these down. You can look at them later. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. A little note here to Christians. Just a little training time here. Um, if I sit down and walk, share the gospel with somebody personally or with a group of people, usually personally, and I'm going to crack open the Bible and talk to them about Christ, I go to, normally go to two places. 1 Corinthians 15 or Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. And all I do is it's great start to finish summary of the gospel of Christ. And what I do is I sit down and we just read through it together and I ask them to react to what does it say. Not, I'm not explaining it to What does it say? And let them react to what it says. If you're not a Christian here today, you don't, you don't name Christ as a follower. You're, you're trying to figure out what exactly does that look like. I have a recommendation for you. You can do it in the privacy of your own home. You can do it with somebody else. That is what I would recommend that you do is get a Bible. Uh, we recommend the ESV, English Standard Version. And you find Ephesians, go to the table of contents in the front of your Bible, uh, look for the book of Ephesians, starts with an E, uh, go to that page, and if you're not familiar with the Bible, we say chapter 2, verse 1, the, the chapter number is the big number, and the little number is the verse number, find the big two, and then read the little numbers 1 through 10. That's a great summary of the gospel. If you want to figure out what is in one place a good place to work through that, that's what I would recommend that you do. Okay. That being said... Let's look through this. I'm going to read it. I might make a few comments. I'm really trying hard not to exegete the whole passage, to go through the whole passage. I want you to catch the flow here, because I have a conclusion at the end of it, obviously. Paul says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out carrying out the desires of, what desires? Desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Stop. First three verses, this is the predicament all of humanity is in, as a group and as a person. Verse 4, he begins, the turning point of everything. Two words, but God. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of, his great, of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, 
By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Stop. It is all of God. It is a gift. We cannot earn it. Nobody, nobody is going to stand in heaven and say, in any stretch of the imagination, say, I contributed anything to my salvation. It is all of God. It's a gift. No one is going to boast. And he explicitly says in verse 9, um, not a result of works. There's no merit. There's no, there's no anything like that in there. Okay? Verse 10. He says in verse 10, for, stop, it's the purpose. Why all that stuff? Why the first nine verses? For, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Why did God go through those 15 verses? Why does he describe those 10 verses that we're saved by grace through faith alone? For we are his workmanship. We didn't do it. We are his workmanship. We were created for a purpose. What was that purpose? For good works which he has designed for us to do. And for which God prepared beforehand, and we should walk in them, describe what those works look like. It's very interesting. Don't have time now. If you compare how the predicament of the first couple, three verses, they were walking in their sin, and they were dead in their sin. In verse 10, they're new creations in Christ, and they're walking in righteous acts. Okay? It is not, it's not a, um, a contradiction to be gracious, but also require works. Let's look at another passage. Peter, 2 Peter 1, 3 through 9. You can just write this down or you can turn to it if you want to. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 9. And I'm just going to read through it quickly. His, his divine power, whose divine power? God's divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through our knowledge of him who has called us who has called us to his own glory and ex- excellence by which he has granted us to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may part- be part- become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire stop that's the gospel He's given us all the things we need for life and guidance because he has provided it for us. He's promised it, and he's provided it all for us. Peter continues. Four. Stop. Shows a purpose. Why? Five. Verse five. For this very reason, he emphasizes it, make every effort, sounds like work to me, to supplement your faith with virtue and the virtue with knowledge, and knowledge of self-control and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with good godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. If, for, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having for, forgotten that he has been cleansed from his former sins. So Peter's saying, here's the gospel of Christ, and the result of that is you're going to grow and increase in these characteristics in your life. But if you don't grow and increase in these characteristics in your life, he calls them blind. 
Not the nice guy here, right? But why does he say they're blind? What, did they, what are they blind to if they don't grow and make every effort to increase in these things? What does he say they're blind to? The forgiveness of their sins, which is the gospel. Last passage. Let's go to t- Titus. Chapter 2, 11 through 14. Titus 2, 11 through 14. Titus 2, 11 through 14. For, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Stop. What is teaching us uh, what is training us to renounce ungodliness and to live godly lives? The grace of God. The gospel teaches us how to do that. Um, as we wait for the, uh, as waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What is a sign, according to this passage, a sign that you are part of the people of God, that we are part of the people of God, part of Christ's possession? Part of what Paul says here is there's a zealousness for doing good works. Now, why did I spend all this time looking at those three passages? I wanted to emphasize that working out, striving, obedience, making every effort, training, those active words that are applied to us in our life are not contradictions to grace and faith. They're an expression of our grace and faith. And nor does grace, grace and working out our salvation exclude each other. You have to have both of them. Now, we need to shift gears here. Paul says um, that we were partnership with the gospel requires that we work out our salvation in four ways. We're going to move through these fairly quickly. Four ways. There's four aspects, and these are all in verse 12. So this is where we focus on verse 12. Partnership in the gospel requires that we work out our salvation by, first of all, following Christ's example of humble obedience. We get this in verse 12 because verse 12 begins with, therefore. Therefore, I want you to do this. He's pointing to what just generally, what immediately had preceded it. And um, in that, um, uh, what he's just generally preceded that was the explanation of Christ as an example, living his life in obedience to God, even to obedience to death. But in verse 5 of that, he had, said, he had said to them, have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ. And then he describes Christ's humiliation and his exaltation. So he's saying to the Philippians, okay, you guys want to figure out what this relationship looks like? Okay, let me give you an example. That example is Christ himself. And then he goes through and lays out those verses. And in those, Christ is an example for us. Now, Sean's already gone through some of this, so I'm not gonna, I just want to highlight something. In two ways, Christ is an example. He's an example of action. Christ is an example of action because he humbled himself. He left heaven, the, that state, if you will. He left that and came down and became, took on human form and became obedient to death. He, he took action. His obedience to the Father required that he did something, and he did it. It's action. But his example to us is also that of attitude. He did it willingly. The Trinity, we as Christians, we as Orthodox Christians, believe in a a, a triune God. God is one God, but he has chosen to express himself as three persons. 
And, and a definition of the Trinity is that the Trinity affirms God's whole and undivided essence belongs equally, eternally, simultaneously, and fully to each of the three distinct persons of the Godhead. When we talk about the Trinity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together, we, we often talk about them as the Godhead. Well, what's your point, Royce? Christ, part of God, who is God in all capacities, he is in all ways equal to the Father and the Holy Spirit. There's no difference except one, role and responsibility. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have different roles and responsibilities. There's nothing, nothing of worth. So when the Father says, Son, I'm sending you to earth to redeem the world, uh, Christ came, and he did that. He submitted to the Father's will. He was obedient to the Father's will. Now, why am I stressing this? Because it is very important for us to understand, in Paul's context, I want you guys to relate to each other a certain way, and Christ is your example. I want you to love each other and care for each other and, and have each other's needs in mind. I want you, Christ is your example of the right attitude. Christ submitted to the Father. He was equal to the Father. So his submission and obedience to the Father was an aspect of role and authority, acknowledging his role and um, responsibility. It was not an aspect of worth. It's not because Christ was less, Jesus the Son was less than the Father. It's because his role required that he go and serve in that capacity. What's the big deal? Some of our resistance to loving one another and encouraging one another and submitting to one another, whether that's to God or to the church or to in marriages and to the families, one of our aspects of submission we struggle with is, is that it is an issue of worth. It's not an issue of worth. It's an issue of roles and responsibilities. Therefore, if Christ is our example, we are free to serve other people. It's not a comparison of value. It is our role and responsibility to do so. You see the difference? It's huge. Also, real quick, in 2.7, uh, Jesus said that he made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant or a bond servant, a willing servant. Paul begins this uh, in verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul and Timothy, servants or bond servants of Jesus Christ. Paul leads his title, if you will, is an apostle in this case. It's, I'm a servant. And what does he say? What's his example for that? Christ is a servant. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Christ is our example. But Christ, this passage tells us something else. Not only that Christ is our example, but obeying the gospel, uh, we need to, we work out our salvation by obeying the gospel through life changes. In verse 12, he says that, um, as you have now always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Just like in verse 27, he says, so that whether I come to you or not, I hear that you're, that you're standing firm and that you're striving the gospel. What Paul is saying here is, I want you guys to pay attention to something, but because I'm away from you, and the reality is, I might not get back with you guys, it should not change your partnership in the gospel. That should not change the way you live your lives. And I think as I thought about this, there's three ways, real quick, that we tend to use this as an excuse. Our life changes, and we sort of disengage from our faith. For example, uh, people wait for another stage of life to start walking, taking their walk with Christ seriously. You know, when I get done with college... Then I'll, then I'll start you know, thinking more about it and putting effort. When I get married, then we will do it together. When I get my career in line, you know, we always have some other time 
that we can go and take our walk with Christ seriously. seriously. Or people disconnect when their life changes. They get in an environment, a church environment, a family environment. Uh, they get in that safety. They get in that routine. They get in that and that safety, and it changes. They move to a different city. They go off to college. They, what, they get married. Whatever the change in their life be, and that, at that point, they disconnect from obedience and following Christ. Or some people just are dependent on somebody else or somebody, some other people, that their walk with Christ really is dependent on those other people keep moving them along. And if that pastor leaves or that they move, move to a new church or that small group they're part of you know, disbands or something like that, they find themselves in a crisis they don't know what to do because they're, they're helpless by themselves. Paul is saying, whatever your life change may be, guys, don't make it dependent solely on me and the existing situation. You have to work out your salvation regardless of the change in your life circumstance. And then he goes on to a third one, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, my emphasis here is side by side. No, that verse is not in verse 12. That's in verse 27. But working out and striving are the same thing. I like the phrase better than working out. Striving side by side. This is a team effort. And uh, he says in verse 12, work out your own salvation. Let's go back a couple weeks when I was preaching about prayer. And I said, when he says you in there, it's plural. Who is, I'm giving you a hint. When he says work out your own salvation, who is the you? Somebody tell me. Somebody tell me loud. Y'all. <laughs> yeah, that's one way to look at it. Y'all. It's the Philippians. As a church. The word your own can be confusing. It sounds like you individually. What he means is, as opposed to me, you as a church need to get this going. So it's a plural. He doesn't have a singular concept. Just like we talked about standing firm in verse 27. One spirit and striving side by side. Side by side is the same as your own. The faith in the gospel is the same as salvation. He talked about partnership in the gospel. All these words, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on it because I spent more time on it a couple weeks ago. All these indicates that this is in the plural. They did not have this concept as much as we do in America of individualism. Nathan is right. A big thing, a thing I stress is our faith, our, the grace, the, our sin. All aspects of our faith is personal, but it is not private. He entered, he, the, what set him off in this whole thing about verse 12 was verses 1 through 4. How do you interact with each other? How do you consider others more important than yourself? Well, that's an interaction with each other. That's what he's talking about. It's a team sport. I'm watching, I've been paying attention like most people, the Olympics. And it made me think about it this week that, and this is, this is a thought. If the Olympics were designed to reflect Christianity, I think there would not be any individual events. There would only be team events. I think if the Olympics were to reflect our Christianity as a whole, there would not be any individual events. There would only be team events. I can't prove that, but it's something you can discuss over lunch and you can let me know if I'm right. Uh, having, uh, the fourth thing is having an attitude of seriousness and urgency. Look at, work out your salvation, verse 12, with fear and trembling. Okay, what do we do with fear and trembling? Well, let me tell you what the words mean. The word fear means fear. The words trembling means trembling. <laughs> Sorry, I tried to come up with some alternative answers, but they're not. It means fear. Ah! It means uh, tremble, shake. That's what they are. We're supposed to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm using about this. What does Paul mean? 
Why would Paul bring this up now? Well, I think there are four reasons, as I thought through Paul, of the context of what he's trying to say. First of all, I think it, he means, we would say, instead of fear and trembling, we would say something like, with seriousness and urgency. That's why I say that. I think it's because of the importance of the gospel. I think of the importance of the eternal nature of what's happening here is no light thing. Paul uses the same phraseology in fear and trembling in 1 Corinthians 2 when he says, when I came, he's talking to the Corinthians, when I came to you, brothers, did not come with proclaiming to you the testimony of God, stop, the testimony of God, the storyline of God. What did Paul preach to everybody? The story of God, not about themselves. Let's go back. Of God, with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the gospel. And I was with you. This is how he was with you. This is how he approached them and preached the gospel to them. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith might not rest on wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Paul, when he preached the gospel, was terrified. Not, did not have stage fright. He was not afraid of public speaking. He was afraid and it took seriously the seriousness of preaching the eternal gospel of Christ. I think there's a second reason that he has a seriousness and urgency, is that is the likelihood of suffering. The likelihood of suffering. Uh, he says in verse 29, for it has been granted, this, this, in, in chapter 1, verse 29 of Philippians, for it has been granted to you, granted to you, this is part of the grace that God's given you, that you, for the sake of Christ, should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And then he goes on and talks about his suffering and their suffering. That's, that's a grace. It's been granted to them to suffer. Paul says to Timothy, he says, uh, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's a word of encouragement for you. We will be persecuted. A barometer, maybe, I don't want to take this too far, of our walking with Christ, the suffering and persecution? I don't know. The third reason is the seriousness and urgency is because of the reality of death. A couple weeks ago, uh, we went up to uh, see our son and his family in uh, Bremerton um, for uh, our birthdays. We have three birthdays of us, had birthdays in February, mine, uh, my son's, and our granddaughter Lydia's. Uh, our son, they have three grandchildren, number four is on the way. Their oldest our oldest grandson is named Kyle. Kyle, he's only four, he's be five in May, but he counts really well. He counts to 100, like boom, 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 boom. And he, suddenly, he just recently figured out that he can count to 1,000 because he realized that numbers repeat, <laughs> okay? So if you can count to 100, then you can do 200, 300, 400, you know, go on. He gets bored, though. He, can't, he, gets, he loses his attention before he gets going. So we celebrated our birthdays, and um, he goes, and, and um, so we're sitting on the couch after the birthday parties, and we're doing a counting book or something like that, a math book of his. And he's four. And uh, so I'm talking to him. I said, hey, Kyle. I said, I'm 50 and you're four. Okay? So that means I'm 46 years older than you are. And he's like, wow. <laughs> and I say, okay, here's, here's, here's something for you to think about. I said, Kyle. I said, when, um, when you're 18, what will I be? And he looks up to me and says, You'll be dead. (laughs) 
Okay, not the answer I was looking for. 64, Kyle. 64 is the correct answer. I, I do have to say something, though. It startled me. And it startled my wife when I told her. <laughs> you know what? It startled me because, you know what? What makes me so presumptuous to think I'm going to live to 64? There's nothing. There's no guarantees here that we're going to live to 64 or next year. There's nothing to say that some of us are not going to die on the way out of here in the car. God has no promises like that for us. And where was Paul when he wrote this letter? He was in prison. His life was filled with suffering for Christ. And earlier in there, he all even said, I'm in this dilemma about when I'm going to die. He couldn't wait to die, by the way. But the reality is, death is a reality of life. And we have no guarantees. And God, in his scope of his story, and our peace in his story, has already knows and determined when your life on earth ends. And when he says, time's up, time's up. We're done. I think Paul had that in mind. He's there facing that when he penned these words. I think that is part of the fear and trembling. Contemplating death is always a focusing our attention on what's really important. Fear and trembling, working out our salvation with fear and trembling is just a warning to us that we should not be passive, apathetic, careless, flippant, casual about our walk with Christ. It's a serious and urgent call to an active partnership in the gospel. Because, let me just summarize here, because the, God is the designer and driver of the history that includes our lives, partnership in the gospel requires that we work out our salvation by following Christ's example of humble obedience, obeying the gospel through life changes, striving together side by side in the faith of the gospel, having an attitude of seriousness and urgency. Some of you probably are saying, you know what, I'm not so sure I want a piece of this. In all honesty, I don't know if I really have the energy to work at this. It sounds kind of hard. It sounds very unpleasurable at times. Some of you are probably going to say, you know what, I don't even know if I want to. I, I don't have the desire to strive and to suffer and to go through all that. Well, here is the key. You're going to have to wait till next week to find out. I do verse 12. Sean next week is doing verse 13. I'm serious. You're going to wait, okay? <laughs> A couple comments and then I'm going to close. Um, you're going to, you hear, you, you may have heard, and you're going to hear more and more and more of the verbiage of partnership for the gospel at Red Sea. We are going to be rolling things out in March, and we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be having a meeting coming tomorrow. What does partnership in the gospel mean? And we're going to unpack what that means for both, of all, both what it means for partnership in the gospel as a whole, like what we're talking about today, and also what it means to work out our salvation together here at Red Sea. Okay? So we're going to be doing that. In fact, in April, right now, we're planning on having four classes. That it's going to, we're going to call it partnership classes or something. And we're going to walk through from the big picture of the story of God to what it means for you to flatten your fanny in one of these seats and be committed to Red Sea, soup to nuts. We're going to talk about what that means to be a partner of the gospel at Red Sea. Okay? That's coming. So if you're saying, well, what does this look like for us? 
It's coming. I want to just emphasize the Lord's Supper. We, we, we bring your attention to the Lord's Supper every week on purpose. And this week, I want to have you maybe think about it a little bit differently. When you go up there, you should view about the grace of God. You should thank him for his forgiveness. You should thank him for the death. You should do all those things all the time. Because it is a proclamation of his death until he returns. However, today, I would like you maybe to think of it as a slightly different angle. And that is this. That you should thank God that before the foundation of the world, he chose to include you in his story. If you're taking the Lord's Supper, it's because you have responded to the gospel of Christ in faith and repentance. That's why we encourage you to take the Lord's Supper. And if that is true for you, that means before the world was even created, your name was written in the book of life, and he has chose you before the foundation of the world to be included in his story. Thank him for that when you take the Lord's Supper. In the Olympics, there are two kinds of participants. What are the two kinds of participants? Spectators and athletes. But today we're talking about not being spectators, but getting in the game and being athletes for the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is with soberness yet with celebration, that we can worship and adore you. Lord, I thank you for the great story of God. I thank you that in your word you have laid out for us, uh, you have not kept us in the dark about the mystery of our salvation, but from the foundation of the world. We know what you as the Godhead talked about. We know what you did. We know that in spite of our fall and frailness, you have worked through Christ to redeem us, to reconcile us, to justify us, and all those other things. Lord, we ask that you would work in our hearts to be your humble servant. Lord, that you would change us into conforming to the image of your Son. So, Lord, we can just rejoice in our partnership, in the privilege, and in the honor, and with the acknowledgement of the responsibility of the partnership of Christ. We thank you, Lord, in your precious and glorious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.